joy be yours. And tranquility, my friend. And peace and harmony. Are you of the body? The body is one. Joy be with you, friends, and peace and contentment will fill you for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morrison. I have been thinking, my head spinning over the ideas in this episode because it is time for Return of the Archons. Return of the Archons. And what I was thinking when I was watching this episode, I thought, I'll bet Steve Morris has a whole lot to say about this one. Am I right? (laughs) You are 100% right. I have a lot to say. In fact, I probably have too much to say, and I'm trying to figure out (laughs) what to cut. Well, don't, don't worry about editing yourself because that is what, that is what we love about enterprise incidents is that we can really get into it. Nowhere else can you find a better, deeper dive on the original series than enterprise incidents and everyone listening Thank you so, so very, very much for your support and for the feedback we've been getting and for the reviews that you've been posting on Apple Podcasts. We're really curious to hear what you think after this particular deep dive, because this is going to be the Enterprise Incidents equivalent of festival (laughs) because we are really going to get into it so is it going to get violent and scary in here is that Uh, what you're saying may just happen oh my god may may just happen but my question for you steve is is a question that we always start off on enterprise incidents what do you think of this episode the first time you saw it and what do you think of it now i've always liked this episode i think it's a really good episode i think it's a classic sort of star trek theme of going to the planet and fixing it and it has so many classic star trek elements i also have always found this episode somewhat mysterious and and genuinely scary and it's so funny because we talked about how charlie x was scary Mm -hmm. this is scary to me in an entirely different way you know like because the the mind control zombie violent festival stuff is one where i go continue to go well, what's going on? Like, yeah. what is happening inside these people's minds? And one of the things, you know, you said, I'm sure Steve has some ideas. Well, one of the big things I want to do throughout is to try to deduce from what we know, what's really going on on this planet mm-hmm. and how did they get here? Yeah. And so there's, and there's a lot of clues that I think are really interesting to explore. Well, you know, that when I was watching this episode again recently, it, it's amazing, like, uh, so far we've this is the the 23rd episode that we're filming of of enterprise incidents and because of the way our conversations have changed virtually every single episode that we've covered so far that definitely was the case while I was rewatching it and on one hand there were things that I loved more about this episode and there are other things that I realized fell short mm. things that we that never paid off. Hmm. So we're going to get into all that, but but I have an interesting story about the yes. first time I saw Return of the Archons because like when I was watching Star Trek every night at seven o'clock on WPHL Channel Seventeen in Philadelphia, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was watching watching it in production order. They aired it in production order, and they also, more importantly, aired the unedited versions. Right of the episodes they were not stripped for syndication now the drawback was that they were showing the actual film reels so they were not sharp the colors were kind of faded 
Right. So you can imagine what it's like for me when I saw Star Trek on DVD and on Blu-ray. Uh, it really blew my mind. But there were three episodes that were not in that production order rotation. And I didn't realize it until I got the first issue of Starlog. Mm. The first, did you ever collect Starlog? Nope. Yeah, well, the first issue of Starlog had an episode guide for Star Trek because it was supposed to be a Star Trek magazine, but they didn't have the license for it. So they turned it into Starlog and then it became what I think is the, the, still the greatest science fiction magazine of them all. Even more than uh, uh, Cinefantastique at Starburst. But so, so I got the first issue of Starlock and I had an episode guide. So I was reading the episode guide and I get to an episode called Return of the Archons and I read the description and I thought, I never saw this one. Wow. And there were two other episodes that I realized for some reason were not in the rotation when, when this Philadelphia station was showing the episodes. The other two were Assignment Earth mm. and the third one, as I as I later found out, I I was uh, lucky that it was not in the rotation. Was and the children shall lead. Oh man, you <laughs> oh, man. really scored on that. Yeah, one. I was funny. Like when I finally saw that and it started, I was so excited because I was seeing an episode that I never right. saw. But then, like I realized, oh man, that was a that was a letdown. But the thing with Return of the Archons was that, by the way, might be the only episode of Star Trek that I might actually hate. Uh, I'm with you on that. It's not just that it's bad. You know, like we just did um, Alternative Factor, which is a bad episode of Star Trek. Yeah. But I hate, I really hate how And the Children Shall Lead. I, I hate And the Children Shall Lead, and I hate The Way to Eden. And I actually like Spock's brain. And when we get to Spock's brain, I mean, I know we got time on this one. Yeah. Uh, but when we get to that, it's going to be a really interesting conversation because uh, it's it's got such a bad reputation, but I actually really like it. But back to Return of the Archons. So- when Star Trek switched from 7 p.m. to 11.30 p.m., I would watch it, you know, Friday nights, and I had my VCR. My friend Elise, Elise Litt, lived close by, and she was a big Star Trek fan like me. She was one of my, she still is one of my closest and dearest friends. And, like, sometimes I would hang out with her, and I would stay over really, really late, and we would watch Star Trek at 11.30, and then we would watch Star Trek at 12.30 on WPIX mm. in New York. We got a good signal oh. from New York. It was a little a little grainy, a little fuzzy, but the audio was, was fine. It was the picture that was a little, a little, you know, fuzzy. But one night, you know, we had watched the 11.30 version, and then we switched over to Channel 11, and they showed Return of the Archons. And I, you know, it's 1230 at night and I got all excited because I was like, oh, this is one of the episodes I never saw. And it was really far out. And it's, it's, as I see the episode now, it is an episode, it's very ambitious. It's mm -hmm. very bold. I think the return of the Archons is a big swing for Star Trek because it is a metaphor for not just one thing, but like a few. Yeah. Okay, and not just communism uh, and and Vietnam, but also you know technology. Yep, and not having the wisdom to understand technology because technology is fat, progressing faster than we know how to use it. I think that's definitely true for today. But when I was rewatching it, I was really kind of blown away by how strong the episode remains. And even though there are things that are never quite paid off, things that are never really explained, it is an entertaining episode. It moves along at a brisk pace. The production 
values for this episode that it was shot, you know, at the 40 acres backlot. Right. The costume design, the fact that you have a lot of extras and a lot of speaking parts, which is why this episode, as you can probably imagine, Steve, went over budget. Yeah. Shocking. <laughs> shocking. So the episode costs $210,793, which oh, makes it way over budget. Way over budget. Way over budget which makes it almost $26,000 over budget. The reason for that is because the price tag, Steve, for the supporting cast alone was $28,395. Wow. Because you had all those speaking parts, all the people on Beta 3. You had uh, uh, people like Lindstrom. Uh, and then you have the sets, the dressing, the wardrobe, and the props. The price tag for that exceeded $32,000. You had some phaser beams. Mm -hmm. uh, they used their phasers a few times in this episode. So the price tag from Film Effects of Hollywood was about $8,000. So fortunately, the score was tracked. But what this episode represents is it was the second of 14 episodes directed by Joseph Pepney. Mm -hmm. Joseph Pepney tied 14 episodes with Mark Daniels. The teleplay was written by Boris Sobelman. The story was written by Gene Roddenberry. In fact, it was part of Gene Roddenberry's description in his very first one-page pitch from March 11th, 1964, when it was called The Perfect World. On July 20th of 1964, this is two years before Star Trek started airing as a regular series, or filming as a regular series, he wrote an outline and changed the title to Paradise HML. And then on July 22nd, he revised his story outline and called it Landrew's Paradise. Mm. For the next two years, that outline basically sat right. in, a, in a shelf. And then Boris Sobelman came on with his story outline dated August 18th, 1966. This is now two years later. And it was called The Return of the Archons. Gene Kuhn did a revised outline. Then Boris Sobelman did a second draft teleplay. Then Stephen Karabatsis came in and did a polish on November 11th. Then Gene Kuhn did a polish on November 10th. And then uh, Gene Roddenberry did a revised final draft teleplay polish dated November 29th, 1966. And because Gene Roddenberry wrote the story, it's interesting to note that The Return of the Archons was nominated for a Writers Guild Award for Best Screenplay hmm. One Hour Drama. Now, like like me, you're probably thinking, Return of the Archons, nominated for a Writer's Guild? What about Balance of Terror, right. sitting in the edge of forever? Well, Return of the Archons was the only Star Trek script that Roddenberry sent the mm. Writer's Guild for consideration. So there you go. That's why it was not, uh, uh, it wasn't like something like sitting on the edge of forever. But uh, I just think that this episode is bizarre. I mean, it's it's trippy. It's uh, eerie, I guess, is the word I'm looking for, especially when yes. when it turns into festival and it turns back and everybody's content again. It is a strange, strange thing to watch. But uh, I think that when it comes to the concept of a manufactured paradise where a society is in an arrested development, I think that's something we saw later in the, sec in the second season with the Apple. But this is definitely one that resonates for the late 60s and I think it also resonates for the 21st century. I agree. And I think one of the thing one of the things I want to do as we go along 
is there's going to be a lot of civilizations we're going to come in contact with and a bunch of them Kirk is going to mess up. And one of the questions I want to ask continually is, was this one a good one? Was Kirk right to mess it up? And how do they rank? Like, where would you want most want to live? Would you want to live on Landry's planet or on the planet with the apple or this side of paradise or, and, and I have some strong opinions about some of them that are might, might not be the same as Kirk's opinions. Would you like to know a little bit about what was going on in the world when this was shot? I want to know everything. What was going on? Well, what's weird is we've said every single week that we've done this show, how unbelievably complicated the world was at this time and how in every week there were these huge events. And I will say, for whatever reason, the week of December 6th through the December 14th of 1966, there was the least stuff going on we've had so far on the show. Um, yes, there was continuing fighting in Vietnam, including the largest friendly fire incident uh, of the U.S. military where 11 American soldiers were killed. Um, and there was also an assassination in Vietnam. Um, the very first geosynchronous satellite was launched. It was the ats and for those of you who don't know, a geosynchronous satellite, and this was, I believe, and I didn't go back and check, but my memory is the whole idea for this came from Arthur C. Clarke. Is this a geos, what is it called? A geosynchronous, geosynchronous sa- satellite. So that, so what I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, I know you will, is that when you put a satellite in orbit between the earth and the moon where the gravitational pull of the earth and the moon cancel each other out? No. No, what it is, is that it, it, the, it, basically when you put something in an orbit, the higher it is, I believe, the slower it has to go in order to maintain its orbit. The lower it is, the faster it has to go. If you put, there's a certain set of positions where it is at a position where its speed of orbit is exactly the same speed as the Earth's rotation. Oh, and so therefore what you can do is you can put, because it's geosynchronous, is you can put a satellite directly above New York City. And it will always be above New York City. Oh, okay. It's it, and so and this is hugely important for GPS. It's hugely important for any kind of uh, cellular communication, satellite communications. Anytime we're bouncing things off satellites, they're in geosynchronous orbit. And the in my understanding today, and again, I didn't do more research on this to back this up, but is that the, there's really limited real estate because it's just this one swath of space where you can do this. And so there, and there's some satellites that are up there that are now obsolete. And so, but they're in the way. And so figuring out how we can get more geosynchronous orbit space, because it's so valuable. And this was the very first one. Oh, interesting. Wow. Um, The other thing that happened is that Eldridge Cleaver was paroled from prison on December 12th, 1966. And he very, very soon after he got out of prison, became the main spokesperson for the Black Panther Party. Um, and that is it. That's all I have for what was going on in the world at the time. Well, at that time, by the way, while this episode was being filmed, uh, another reason why it went over budget is that the, uh, you know, they had six days to shoot these episodes. And because of the very complex production of this particular episode, it did go a, a day over budget, uh, even though jo- Joseph Pepney is a, obviously one of the very best directors that, that Star Trek ever had the honor to work with. It was uh, the 23rd episode to film. And it filmed over a seven day, uh, you know, seven production days between December 6th and December 14th. So while it was a 23rd episode to film, it was actually the 21st episode to air, which it did on February 9th, 1967, which was the third anniversary of the Beatles appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. Nice, (laughs) nice. 
Uh, bringing your two greatest loves together. Absolutely. Star Trek and the Beatles. Shall we get into the show? Oh, this is going to be a doozy. Yes, let's go. The the teaser, I, I, I'm continually amazed at how many different ways Star Trek figures out how to start the show. And in this case, first of all, we're right in the middle of an action sequence. We have no idea what's going on. We're on these streets. We're being chased. And not only that, but we're in a world that looks like 19th century Earth. And yet there's even this weirder part when you observe it more closely that Sulu and O'Neill are two Star Trek guys who are there. They're not dressed the same as the people that are chasing them. They're dressed almost like colonial times. And the people chasing them are sort of mid uh, 1800s, it looks like. And it's immediately real scary. O'Neill, we've got to keep going. Come on, get up. I love the way this episode starts. In fact, I remember vividly, vividly when this episode came on at 1230. And it didn't start with the Enterprise in orbit, didn't start with the landing party beaming down, didn't start on the bridge. It started with Kirk and O'Neill running. And by the way, O'Neill, if that character seems familiar, you're going to see him again in the Tholian web. He was Mm. the transporter chief in the Tholian web, played by Sean Morgan. But Stan Robertson was the NBC, like basically executive, who approved and gave notes to Desilu and Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn and uh, Bob Justman and, and Dorothy Fontana. It was like his mandate, like what he loved was trying to do episodes that did not start on the Enterprise. He wanted episodes to, to be different. He wanted to start episodes differently. And he, he loved it. It was his idea, you know, from our last conversation on tomorrow, tomorrow's mm. yesterday to start that at an Air Force base. Right. So now- the next episode that they filmed is Sulu and O'Neill running, and you're already on Beta 3. Like you said, they're in the middle of an action scene, and it grabs you right away. And Stan Robertson loved that. There's something I learned listening to an interview with Lin-Manuel Miranda that totally relates to this, which is that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, obviously great composer of Hamilton, he is being mentored essentially by Stephen Sondheim, one of the great composers of all time. And uh, he brings a song to Sondheim and Sondheim says, and it has some particular melody or some particular rhythm or something that repeats. And Sondheim says, that is really, really great. Don't repeat it too often. Because what he says, what Sondheim says, and I completely agree, is even if it's a really good thing, the more time you, times you repeat it, the less powerful it becomes. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is certain ways, particularly in music, where repetition act is actually building power over time. But this is to the fact that we're getting different teasers. The teasers are not the same. They all feel different. Gives each of them a unique power. So I, what's the NBC executive's name? Stan Robertson. I'm 100% on team Stan Robertson. (laughs) Frequently, I find myself against executives because I think they can be the enemy of the creative process sometimes. But in this case, Stan right on. Yeah. And what we hear is that the captain had given some orders to find some clue about something. So they don't quite want to beam up but they are getting surrounded and chased and there are these guys in robes coming after them and it is scary yeah and sulu calls up to the enterprise for an emergency beam up we've got to make a run for it we can't just stand here mr news can't take you'll beam us up any minute run i tell you we got to get out of here you know what they're capable of o'neill and he takes off and sulu is standing there waiting for the transporter to hit and these guys in robes come in and they have these big staffs And just in the second, the split second before he beams up, Sulu gets hit with something. And I love the way they do this because he gets hit with something, he's in pain, and then his facial expression just kind of blisses out 
just as the transporter hits. Just it's a, it's a great effect. Like this is a is a great example of a teaser that just works perfectly. I absolutely agree with you. There's something scary and creepy about the way the lawgivers with their robes covering their faces and you know our landing party of Sulu and O'Neill they're not wearing their Starfleet uniforms. They're wearing the the costumes of the the garb of the time to fit in. And this uh, this expedition obviously did not go well. And it's such a dire moment that O'Neill at at the time made the right decision to run off. Although eventually it didn't work out for him either. either. But so, so when Sulu beams aboard the enterprise, as soon as he materializes on the platform, he's got this smile and Mm -hmm. Kirk and McCoy and Lindstrom. It's an interesting character. I have a question about that in a second. Something is definitely way off the moment. Sulu beams on. Sulu, what is it? Where's Lieutenant O'Neill? What? Who? Lieutenant O'Neill, where is he? You're not of the body. What's interesting, and this is one of the key questions, and I actually don't think the show is consistent in this, is one of the key questions I have is how much of Sulu is there? How much of his memories as an individual is there? And in this case, there must be some, because he says... They knew we were our cards. And he holds up a bundle of clothes and says, These are the clothes they wear, not these. Mm-hmm. So he has to have some memory of where he came from. He's not just totally wiped clean. Right, right. He, well, he, that's a really good point. Because even when we see, like, later in the episode, McCoy, obviously, you know. He seems wiped clean. He seems wiped clean. Yeah. Uh, like, he doesn't even know who Captain Kirk is. Uh, and he definitely doesn't know who Spock is. And if you should right. know, if, if if he f- should know who anybody is, it should be Spock because he looks so different. But the the thing that that interested me, in addition to the way that Sula beams aboard, is that there are a lot of people in the transporter room, and the camera f- clearly focuses on a character wearing a blue shirt, uh, a medical shirt, and the character's name is Linster. And the way that that we see this character played out through the episode. And this is something that I definitely picked up even more. So watching it recently, I feel like there was more to this character than we eventually see. I feel like things were, were cut and they, they were, and I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, this character who's played by Christopher Carl held, he was actually married to Sarah Marshall who played Dr. Janice Wallace oh. in The Deadly Years. Oh, and uh, maybe she's the blonde lab technician. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, he would visit her on the set. And Held was, uh, he had recurring roles on TV shows like Perry Mason and Falcon Crest, The Outer Limits, uh, The Invaders and, and Charlie's Angels. And what I, what I discovered was that at one point along the evolution from Outline to Final Draft Teleplay, Lindstrom, the character was going to fall in love. I literally was going to say, "Can I take a guess?" My yeah. guess is he would fall in love with Tula or whatever her name. Well, is. yeah, maybe it was girl. Tula. I yeah. mean, it certainly seems like because there's there are He's no protective other of her. And, yes, yeah. but uh, but whatever for whatever reason that was cut. But the character, I still thought that he stood out. Uh, you know, for better or worse. Um, but anyway, so so yeah, Lindstrom one shot character in in this uh in this episode and um. 
And again, a lot going on in the transporter room during this teaser. Absolutely. And, and Sulu is saying, as he's describing the world, he says, You're wonderful. You're the sweetest, friendliest people in the universe. It's paradise, my friend. And then he repeats, Paradise. Lieutenant O'Neill, where is he? Paradise. Paradise. Wow. That's, an, that's a grabber. One of the other questions I have, by the way, is, is it paradise? Well, are they really experiencing the emotions they say they're experiencing or are they being controlled? Well, this is a question that we see answered by the end of the episode, mm. or at least we see Kirk's version of the answer come at the end of the episode. Right. And it is something that uh, Kirk really has a thing against paradise when paradise is not does not happen organically. He's, he, he, it's almost like he has some kind of syndrome about paradise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh. but we'll, we'll, we'll get to all that. But, uh, uh, but, you know, when we come back for Act 1, we are now back on the 40 Acres backlot in Culver City, Desilu's 40 Acres, the same place that they filmed Miri mm. and that they will film coming up, City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, it's one thing, by the way, I, uh, that I am just, as I've said many times, impressed with the show's cheapness. And I mean that in a completely sincere way. And one of the brilliant things about the idea of parallel worlds that Gene Roddenberry introduces meant that when they needed to get costumes for this episode, they just went to costume storage, you know, and looked around and they found some stuff because these costumes were probably worn on Gunsmoke and Bonanza and a whole bunch of other stuff. Well, it was deliberate. I was part of the of Star Trek Bible that they would explore like parallel worlds so they could make make use of contemporary sets and costumes, and it would save the show a lot of money. Whereas you think of every Star Trek and science fiction series from this point forward, if we go to another world, will we have to invent a new species with new makeup and new clothes, new architecture, new, everything has to be new. And this is like, no, everybody kind of looks human. <laughs> you know, it's going to be kind of the same. But it was actually Bob Justman, Robert H. Justman, the associate producer, was already expressing concerns that about about I think we're seeing a little too much with the parallel Earth mm -hmm. situation, and all I could think about when I was reading about that was wait till you get to the second season. Yeah, you know, Planet of the Romans, Planet of the Gangsters, yep. Planet of the Nazis. But right now we are down on the planet, and we hear just a little bit that part of why they were here was to find out what happened to some starship that called the Archon that disappeared a hundred years ago, um, and. They're all in clothes that now match the clothes of the people down there. Spock, of course, has a hood over his head, so we can't see the ears. And everybody walking by has expressions on their face like Sulu, just blissed out. And they are walking in unison. If you mm -hmm. notice, each mm. step they take, they're all taking the same step at the same time. And that effect was achieved because they walked to pre-recorded drum beats. Oh, and smart. those drum beats were muted in post-production. That is very, very smart. You know what it reminded me of, by the way, is WandaVision. Is that the town in WandaVision, and in that case, they're being controlled. Um, but, that, but the fact that they are all walking in unison, that is control. You know what I mean? I never even thought about that, but you're right. That the town in WandaVision is, is beta three. <laughs> yeah. With Wanda as Landru. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's even a dead artificial intelligence in WandaVision who is oh part of the gosh. whole thing. Oh my gosh. You just connected the original Star Trek to the MCU. My mind is blown. <laughs> <laughs> it just occurred to me just as we've been talking. 
Um, and people, there's a very specific way that people see each other. They put their hand to their chest, a small bow, and joy to you, my friend. Peace and tranquility. And Kirk's like, uh, yeah, joy to you too. So, um, so this is this is interesting. We are we are now hearing about come for the festival, eh? Yeah? Yes. But you'll have to hurry. It's almost the red hour. So festival and red hour. We're being introduced organically to to a couple of, of very very big crucial elements of the return of the archons. Elements that, while effective, while they're being played out, are not paid off, and those are the problems I have with this episode. Is that when we finally see the festival and the red hour, and the red hour is over, you know, what does that have to do with anything? And I, I'm, I want to ask you about that when we get to that. I part. have a theory. I have a theory. Okay, about, I about figured what it you is. would, but it is worth noting that Red Hour is the name of Ben Stiller, filmmaker, actor Ben Stiller, director. His production company is called Red Hour Films. Really? And Ben Stiller is a diehard, card-carrying Star Trek fan. Well, anytime he wants to come on Enterprise Incidents, <laughs> oh my God, he's that absolutely would be amazing. welcome to come. <laughs> By the way, the Aya, it's such a main, it's a very specific main accent that they're trying to do, I think. They actually were trying to do that. And the Bylar, who is, is talking, is played by Ralph Maurer. Uh, he also played the Akoshin, uh, the uh, SS Lieutenant in Patterns of Force. Mm. And Tula. Oh, yeah. Yeah, remember that? Yeah. And then Tula is played by Brioni Farrell. Got a place to sleep it off yet? Go around to Rager's house. He's got rooms. The clock strikes six. What is your take when the clock strikes six? The first thing we see is Tula, who's all prissied up, Mm -hmm. wearing a hat, wearing her period clothing. She just rips off the hat, screams like crazy. Everybody screams like crazy. People are throwing stones through windows. You see something hit Lindstrom uh, on the head. I mean, it's it's a violent moment. This is where it's genuinely scary. And so, well, here's my my first question is, are the things that they're doing, the violence, the attacks, and it seems as if where there's going to be rape and there's going to be every every bad thing inside people is going to come out. Do you think this is coming from within them? Or do you think this is Landrew creating these emotions within them? Okay, well, I think it is absolutely the influence of Landrew because they are of the body. It's like a collective. It's like the Borg, if you if you want to, you know, mm-hmm. draw a parallel sure. to the next generation. So they are not individuals. And that's where the allegory comes in for the, the body. Are you of the body? Are you of the party? Mm-hmm. And this was a subtle metaphor for communism, the communist party. And sometimes not so subtle. Yeah, sometimes not so subtle. Right now maybe it's not so subtle. But no, I I, I absolutely think that everything at this point, uh, everyone is acting under the control of Landrew. I think about it a little bit differently, which is that I think, and I'll get to sort of my reasoning in a minute, I think what Landrew is doing is turning on and off different elements of the brain, is that he is quieting some elements and then releasing them. And we'll, I'll get to why I think that in a moment. But right now, our guys just want to get the hell out of here. Yeah, yeah. And they'd heard that there's this place, Rager, and they go to the door and they go through the door. And I love that it goes from chaos and noise to just 
very, very quiet space. Sorry to break in on you like this. We didn't expect that kind of a welcome. So well, this is where we meet Redger. Redger is played by Harry Towns, who has a ton of TV and film credits. Uh, he was on Father Knows Best, Death Valley Days, The Twilight Zone, Thriller, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Wild Wild West, Rawhide. And then you have Tamar, played by John Lormer, who was in the cage. Mm. He was one of the uh, illusion survivors of mm. the encampment when Captain Pike oh, yeah. comes down. Yeah. And he was also in For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. Right. And then you have Hakem, played by Morgan Farley. And Morgan Farley is, uh, uh, or rather the, the character, Hakem, is incensed that these people, these young people who have walked in, are not taking part of festival. So to your question, is Landrew controlling this? Like, why isn't this, the, this old guy, Hakem, out there partying like crazy? If he's of the body. So I had one theory about this. Then I kind of decided maybe this theory doesn't work because of something that's said later on about Redger. But the theory I had was that when you first get absorbed, it's the control is really strong, which is why McCoy is just gone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And maybe the reason that Sulu is less gone and has some memory of who he was is that he's farther away. Because I also think that um, there's a Wi-Fi connection here. Landrew is able to send messages to people and get them to do stuff. So there is some sort of wireless telepathic communication thing. And maybe there's an inverse square law where as Sulu's way out in orbit, it's not as strong on him. But when you first get absorbed and you're a young person, it is super strong. And then over time, as you grow older, it's a little bit less strong and you have a little bit more freedom. But by that time, you're so indoctrinated into the thing that it's extremely difficult to resist. But later on, they do say that Redger is born able, like he that he's immune somehow. Well, and the other thing I think is I think there's a reason why we have festival and red hour. There's a reason that it's built into Landrew's system. And there's a reason why older people don't necessarily have to participate in it. Okay, see now the problem that I had with this episode was I did not see the purpose of a festival. Like it's it's not explained what is the, what is the significance okay. of festival? I'll, why is why do we why are we totally content walking in a daze, in step with everyone who is of the body, and then from six p.m. to six a.m. we go crazy, and then we're back to the content part again? Like, what was the purpose of all? Of okay, that? I will tell you what I think, and okay. I I don't think this is this is what I think really based on what you and I've been doing with this show, which is, this is what I think is there, there was a time 6,000 years ago where they started doing this. And I think it was in its infancy. I think it got more complicated later on. I'll explain why I mean that in a bit. But I think that Landrew was a lot like Roger Corby is that Landrew went, what if we could get rid of anger, violence, greed, hate, jealousy? What if we could take those out of people? And so what he did was he figured out a way. That's why I say, I think different parts of the brain, you're turning down, you're turning down the volume on this. But what Landrew knew that Roger Corby didn't is what Kirk learned in the enemy within is you need the dark side. You can't just get rid of it. It can't just go away. And so what Landrew figured out is there has to be an outlet is that, okay, I can turn all this down, but if I keep it turned down forever, and everyone is just blissed out the whole time that humans will cease to work just like we need to sleep and we need to have all these other experiences. We also, 
we're basically suppressing all the negative side. The, the, the dark Kirk side is being crushed. And so that means that every few months we got to just let it rip. And we, and everybody turns into evil Kirk for that night. Okay. First of all, the fact that you mentioned what are little girls made of and Dr. Roger Corby, I have that in my notes. Oh, really? To discuss when we get to the end of this episode. Yeah. Oh, and definitely. I will of course. Discuss yeah. that. that. That is an episode. And again, this all comes because of the way that we have looked at Star Trek as a serialized show where the consequences of one episode affect the, the uh, motives of, of a later episode. And absolutely, I thought of Roger Corby and I thought of what a little girl's made of for different reasons. Right. But what you're saying makes complete sense because when you look at just how much we need our dark side. Yeah. I mean, that was a very, very big takeaway, of course, from the enemy within. But you also have this cautionary tale that we saw with Roger Corby, who was a human who thought that that being eternal and immortal as a machine, as an android, would be better so you can live forever and right. your body doesn't age. So, but in transferring to the body, so to speak, in transferring to a mechanical artificial body you lose your soul right and that is ultimately the argument that kirk uses to talk landrew into uh, killing itself by the end of the episode but it is definitely uh something that makes a whole lot of sense when it came when it comes to there's got to be some outlet for the body yeah. and that outlet is festival so no one i mean i i looked everywhere to see if there was ever a like in the development process of Return of the Archons to see if there was ever like an intent, if there was ever like like if it was ever explained and maybe an earlier draft what the purpose of Festival and Red Hour were, and never was. And I also looked online to see if like maybe people have some theories. Yeah, maybe there were theories because of course you know uh, we all like to dive deep into yeah. into science fiction. But no, I mean I, I've seen more people question the purpose of Red Hour. And, and festival that actually have a theory behind it. So you are the first person to actually take a prior episode, like what a little girl's made of and apply it to the notion, to the concept of festival that you can't just have everyone content. There's gotta be a release. There's gotta be an outlet. But in, in having that release, what you're seeing for the second time in the original series, uh, an alleged attempted not even alleged no it's not uh, alleged. an attempted rape and what's so weird as you look at the people is that they are screaming and laughing both the men and the women it's like because i really think like there was a cork in the bottle and they popped it and now people are being able to be themselves or, or being this part of themselves that's been repressed and it is exciting and thrilling and a turn on and terrifying mm -hmm. and violent and horrible you are strangers? Yes, that's right. Kirk, as always, is really good at figuring out what lie he needs to tell because he's immediately like, We're from the valley. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're from San Fernando Valley. Yeah, we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're like, yeah, they were hanging out at Encino. <laughs> you came for the festival? Yes. And how come you here? And by the way, Lindstrom immediately is asking, Hey, is that your daughter? Yes. Well, you better do something. She's outside. I know. It's festival. So this is the thing. And I, it's, the whole time watching, I'm like, oh, why is this Lindstrom guy here? 
Like, what's the deal? Right. And so as soon as you said that his partner had been cut down, I was certain that he had was going to have a relationship with Tula. Mm-hmm. And here's the interesting thing that happens as you edit, both as you edit film, but also as you're an editor writing your thing, is that you're trying to always trying to make things shorter. And there was a certain point where it's like, look, we got to follow Kirk, Kirk and Spock. We, we can't devote the time to Lindstrom, even though I totally see the character art. He's protective of Tula. He's worried about Tula. And then he's the guy who gets left behind at the end with the woman that he loves. Right, right. He stays behind. But they didn't have time to do that. Mm-hmm. And so they cut some of that stuff out. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing happened. And I swear to God, it happens when I'm editing our show is that I'm always trying anything I can trim down to make things a little bit quicker. I try to. And what will happen is, is I'll cut down one thing in order to get to this thing faster. And then I'll cut down another thing to get to that thing faster. And then I'll go, well, now I really don't even need that thing. And I'll throw that out too. Sure, sure. They should have cut Lindstrom. Every line that he has would have been just as good said by McCoy. Uh, You know, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And you're over budget. Yep. So cut the budget. (laughs) So it's like, because McCoy could easily say, you know, don't you care about your daughter? And, you know, she's out there with those people. That's perfectly within McCoy's character. It would make sense to creating that conflict. And instead of having this guy that keeps popping up, who is this guy? But the girl out there, she is intestable, as you should be. The lawgivers should know. And Hakem heads out. He is very distressed. He's like, you are not of the body. And he leaves. And we head off to this room. And what's interesting is Kirk is trying to ask about this Landrew guy. And of course, if you're on this planet, you don't need to ask about Landrew. And Redger is looking at going, Landrew. You ask. And he moves forward. The lighting is always beautiful. Moves forward through the shadows and says, You scorn festival? Are you? Are you? And he doesn't say it. But what was he about to say? Archons. Absolutely. And the lighting, again, the cinematography for this episode, especially in the enclosed, uh, you know, in the, the sets on stage 10. Jerry Finnerman, like who on TV in the 60s was a better cinematographer? Than Jerry Fairman. His work on the original series is absolutely a work of art. It is one of the many reasons that Star Trek holds up, that it looks so beautiful 55 years later. And the the way, in addition to the costume design and the, all the other production design elements of Return of the Archons, absolutely Jerry Finnerman's work as a DP, amazing. 100%. The landing party is is given a room and uh, Kirk looks outside and he's just looking at the mayhem of the festival. And you hear someone scream, festival, festival. I didn't realize, but that person who said that is the actor's name is Bobby Clark. He was the guy in the Gorn costume right. or one of the guys in the Gorn costume. So Bobby Clark had a speaking line in Star Trek and it was festival, festival. Wow. <laughs> And the craziness continues outside, and then it is the next morning, and Kirk wakes everybody up. We see the big clock out the window, and it hits six o'clock. And all of the people who are acting crazy and breaking things and doing horrible stuff stop, put down their rocks, and go back to walking. It's an eerie moment. It's a great moment. It gives it such an impact, even though up until about a few moments ago, I, I just really felt like, well, what was the purpose of all of that? But I agree with your theory completely. And I love like when Kirk says to Spock, you and I have some serious thinking to do. Which again goes to this point of these are two equal great minds. Absolutely. Um, and then just as the festival's ended, we hear screaming and it is too. Oh, 
know, it's all over now. And Tula is traumatized. Yes. Because of her experience in festival. Yes. So was she of the body? Yes. Wait a minute. Think about it. Was she of the body? Because why was she having her breakdown in the, pri- the privacy with her father? And instead of like outside, like why did she wait till she got inside when she was away from all those people to, to break down and to, to let her hair down, so to speak, and be, and be so traumatized? Like, why did she just do that outside? Why did she hide it? Well, here's, here's my thinking. And again, it goes to the question of, are they there? Like, are they automatons or are they actually inside there experiencing the things? And I think they're inside there. I think they are there to some degree. And I think there's two possibilities for why it happens that way. One is, is that Landrew is at its highest level of control when people are in groups. And then when people are in private, there's less levels of control. Mm -hmm. But I also Mm -hmm. think she's Reger's daughter Mm -hmm. who has a natural resistance to this stuff. Well, then, then, then you would just answer my question because Reger was immune. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they, they established that later. He was, a, he was immune to absorption. So this is Reger's daughter, Tula. Yes. So I think that she was also immune to absorption and she was faking it. Yep. So she was not of the body. Because she couldn't not go outside and get raped. Well, because, well she had to go because outside. Because she had to. Right. Otherwise, they would know. But she played along with it. Because otherwise they would kill her, basically. Uh, I mean, because it's never established whether or not she actually is of the body or not. But I think, especially now, through the course of this conversation, it's hitting me that Tula was not of the body because she was traumatized for, for basically being raped. But here's the other thing about it is, in my opinion, of course, we don't know and we're already speculating well beyond the show. Uh. But in my opinion, every single person who experienced Red Hour feels it inside what has happened to them they're just not showing it because it's all being repressed but if they're of the body like the rest of that of that population when they went back to being content again presumably there there were other women who were who were raped too but i think that the women who were of the body i don't think that they had that traumatized reaction when red hour when the festival was over i don't think they did either but i think it's there repressed repressed Right, I agree with you. Repressed. Are you archons? What if we are? And what's so great? So Kirk could say, no, we're from the Star... I'm Captain Kirk from the Star... But he doesn't. Mm -hmm. And you know one of the great tests in all of strange science fiction is in Ghostbusters, when someone asks if you're a god, you You say say yes! yes. (laughs) Kirk would pass that test. Yeah. There's no reason for him to say... He didn't say we are archons. But he's leaving the possibility open because that gives him more options. Like he didn't say yes. He didn't say no. You're right. He did say I'm Captain Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. He goes, what if we are? It is the perfect cover yeah. because he's not below on his cover. Exactly. And at this point, Reger's like, oh, we got to hide these guys. And mm-hmm. right as he's thinking we got to hide these guys, the door opens and in comes Haken, Haken with the lawgivers. The lawgivers. And one of those lawgivers was played by Sid Haig and the voice, the voiceover for the lawgiver, Walter Edmondson. And I love that image of the lawgivers again. So William Ware Thice, Bill Tice, he, he was the costume designer. Mm-hmm. What a great effect of seeing hooded figures. And you can barely, barely make out their faces and you can only really see their mouths moving. And, and that again is also not just costume design, 
that is cinematography. Absolutely. And it's cheap. It's cheap. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, and Tamar, our other guy is trying to settle all this down. It's all just a joke. It's not a big deal. And they kill Tamar. Now there's nothing in that tube. Right. So even though Tamar was older and he was not taking part in festival, so he was absorbed. Yes. Or was he absorbed? I think he was absorbed. This is why I kind of go like maybe the power lessens over time. Because Tamar is clearly not behaving in the blissed out way. But if he is absorbed and he knows that Redger is not, oh, well, actually, no, it's, it's, it's established later that it, they were part of a triad. Yes. Okay. So that's why Tamar does not out Redger. Right. He's on the Got team. It. Okay. He's, he's on the team, right? There, you see, not of the body. The good is all. Landru is gentle. You will come. And there's a music sting and the camera pushes in on Kirk. And that <laughs> is the end of Act 1. Act 2, we're right back where we were. And Kirk's response? We're not going anywhere. <laughs> it is the law. You must come. I said we're not going anywhere. And the two guys in cloaks, they kind of turn to each other. <laughs> Evidently, they're not prepared to deal with outright disobedience. How did you know? And again, this goes to the point of Kirk's brain is right up there with Spock's brain. Everything we've seen here so far seems to indicate some sort of compulsive involuntary stimulus to action. Your analysis seems logical. And Kirk finally tells the lawgivers, you tell Landrew that we'll speak to him. So Kirk is out of his element, but he is in control. And he takes the staff. Because they're not prepared for people to resist. And it makes me go, who are the lawgivers? Who are the guys in these cloaks? Are they always lawgivers? Are they somehow different? Or is it that they could put that cloak on anybody and Landrew can control them into acting like lawgivers? You know, when I was watching the scene in the beginning of the episode with uh, Sulu and O'Neill running, and I'm watching the scene now with the lawgivers, and I think to myself, what movie does this remind me of? Logan's Run. I totally agree. Logan's totally agree. Run. So, Including festival. So Exactly. Like you've got a festival. You've got the people who are not of the body are runners. Yep. Lawgivers are sandmen. Are, are, uh, uh, yeah, salmon. Sandmen, yeah. So here's the interesting thing. So, in, in, so just like The Return of the Archons aired in 1967, Logan's Run was published in 1967, and it was written by both William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson. Oh. George Clayton Johnson wrote The Man Trap, the first Star Trek episode to air. Wow. Interesting. That is very interesting. We have time. Come with me. What? To a place I know. You'll be safe there. But we must hurry. Landrew will come. And we run into the guy that raped his daughter mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Lindstrom is immediately that's him no it wasn't Bilar it was Landrew he says it wasn't him it was Landrew yeah. so wait a minute okay a throwaway line no yeah. it wasn't Bilar it was Landrew so Landrew raped not just everyone wow think about that for a minute so let's let's go back to what you were saying about the need the need for festival mm -hmm. so maybe it's more than just giving this population an outlet. Maybe, Maybe it's giving Landrew an outlet? It's giving Landrew an outlet, an outlet that it thinks is keeping him or it human. Well, that certainly relates to Landrew's line later on of, I reserve creativity to myself. Steve, 
Steve, that line that Redger says it wasn't Bilar, it was it was Landrew. If Landrew is creating this festival and f- attempting to connect with the emotion hmm. as a way to stay quote unquote human, I, I think that just opens this episode up to something that I've never heard discussed or because because that line was so crucial, but it's just tossed away. Right. Well, and I also think there's another explanation too, which is that the devil made me do it. The, you know, the idea of there was the, the bad things I do are from an outside source. And in this case, there is really an outside source messing with everybody's brain, you know? And so Landrew flipped that switch, whether, whether or not Landrew is inside people's brains, experiencing their violent emotions, or Landrew flips the switch to allow those violent emotions to come out. Either way, Landrew is responsible for what happened. Not only is Landrew responsible for what happened, Steve, but but Landrew sees festival as a necessity to to feel those emotional outbursts as a way to stay connected to what it thinks is humanity. Right. Wrong humanity, but humanity. It's too late. And all the people that were blissfully walking on their way stop. And slowly they reach down to grab rocks and sticks. And we hear, Landrew, he's summoning the body. This part scares me. Really scares me. Even today. So I had to look up when did Night of the Living Dead came out. Mm -hmm. And it is 1968. That's right. They're like zombies. It's the slow moving forward of the unstoppable, unfeeling force. That is very much what a zombie movie is. Another movie that this that this episode makes me think of. Yeah. Is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Totally. 100%. Yeah. You know, so just like invade the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 50s was a an allegory for the Cold War. So is the return of the Archons, among other things, an yeah. allegory for not just Vietnam, but also the Cold War and communism. Yep. And the effect of the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is one of the best yeah. movie remakes of them all. Uh, the, the one with Donald Sutherland, directed by Philip Kaufman. That That is a, a movie that makes me think now of Return of the Archers. Sure. So there's a lot of that collective, because the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the pod people, mm-hmm. uh, they're one. It's, it's one. Like There's so much of that Cold War element, that Cold War paranoia, Mm-hmm. That was playing itself out in the 50s with the original Body Snatchers, right. in the 60s with Return of the Archons, in the 70s with I mean, Logan's Run and definitely the right. remake. My mind's blown just to, you know, wrap There's my a, head around That's right. There's a lot going on in this episode. And right now what's going on is we put phasers on stun and we knock out a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch more people are coming, including O'Neill, the guy we lost in the teaser. And, of course, they want to bring him with him. Retcher's going. But I tell you, he's one of them. When he wakes, Lundra will find us through him. And, of course, they decide to bring him with him. And they go through a big, huge stone door into, like, a dungeon-like set. And then Redger pulls out a, this weird, glowing white tablet, which they call a light tablet. Comes from a time before Landrew. Before Landrew. So what caused the planet of Beta 3 to go from this advanced society advanced enough to create this light tablet to being a throwback to the 18th century, the 19th century. Well, this is one of the things I definitely want to speculate on 
So a very interesting thing that is really a throwaway is the fact that they thought they were going to be dressed in colonial clothes, but it ends up they were about a century off. And what it means is, is that it isn't just that Landrew sent them back to one time and they've been there static. They have been advancing slowly through time, but at a very, very slow rate. And so what we hear later on is there was war and all sorts of horribleness, huge disasters. And huge disasters, as been well established by history, are seams where strong men can come in, where new ideologies can come in, because we're desperate, we're scared. You know, without World War I, the Communist Party probably doesn't take over Russia. Without the bombing of Cambodia, we probably don't get Pol Pot. You know, mm-hmm. it's because society is shattered in some way that allows a charismatic figure to come in. Absolutely. You know, and so what I think happened is that this charismatic figure arrived and had this idea of a way because things I think things were really, really bad. I think things were really bad. And I think Landrew came up with a way and it was maybe this way of influencing the brain to some degree through technology that could turn down some of the negative aspects of it. But I don't think the world we're seeing today is the world that the human Landrew created. Oh, absolutely not. I think it has changed. And, and we'll get into later how, how I, why I think it changed and how it changed. I, and honestly, the fact that you're looking at Landrew, who thousands of years ago was some kind of, not, not just a charismatic figure, but he was seen as, some, as a messiah. Yeah. He was oh, yeah. seen as a messiah and a, a very flawed messiah that thought that by putting its essence into a computer, that it would stay the same person. And, and it didn't. He'll be coming around soon, Captain. He must not. He's been absorbed. Absorbed. The body absorbs its enemies. It only kills when it has to. And finally, we make the decision to keep him unconscious. We hear that the Archons, when they showed up, were out of control and opposing the will of Landrew, and that's why they had to get shut down. And we hear that Redger is part of some kind of resistance that are one of three, and Tamar was one, and there's a third guy, and even Redger doesn't know who that third person is. We'll find out soon, but the other thing we find out is that Archon, the starship, was pulled down from the sky, Mm. and Kirk right away flips open his communicator, and we see Scotty on the bridge. And by the way, this is the first time uh, that we have seen Scotty in command of the Enterprise. Captain, we're under attack. There are heat beams of some kind coming up from the planet's surface. Status report. Our shields are holding, but they're taking all our power. If we try to warp out or even move on impulse engines, we'll lose our shields and we'll burn up like a cinder. So now, on top of trying to figure out who is Landrew, what's going on, what's Festival, what's Red Hour, what happened to the Archons, now, this has turned into a race against time to figure all this out before the force pulls the Enterprise into the atmosphere. Now, just like we talked about the Apple being mm-hmm. a manufactured paradise, that was also an episode where Val was pulling the Enterprise down from the sky and Scotty was in command and he lost his job because he right. couldn't figure out how to get the Enterprise out right. of there. By the way, Uhura is in the shot and she's in the shot the other time we talked to Scotty. And she has basically nothing to do except look concerned. And I really wonder why she's there. And, and my guess is, contractually, when you have someone who is a recurring character, is they have in their contract, I have to appear in this many episodes, or you have to pay me. And so it probably, they, they just had to have her there. Because there's no reason for her to be, I mean, I love, I love Uhura, she's great. 
but she's not contributing anything other than looking concerned in the scene. Well, I, I you know what, Steve, it's a, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's, this is one area where Return of the Archons has not aged well. So you have Uhura in the episode, but she doesn't have any speaking lines. The one female that does have a speaking mm, line is raped. Tula. Yeah. Otherwise, everyone in this episode is male. And it's, uh, it's a flaw that's noticeable now yeah. because, because of the need for diversity and gender equality and what we're, we're doing on, on front of the camera and behind the camera. And uh, it's also a problem that I think also obviously infects uh, the devil in the dark. There are no women in that episode at all. Great episode, but right. there's no women in it. So watching Return of the Archons now, I was thinking, wow, yeah, this is definitely a very male-heavy episode. Redger has a reaction because there, projected on a wall, is Landru. I am Landru. And I love the design of him. I love his costume. I love his hair. He does look like a messiah figure. And Redger's reaction, like this, like overpowering the way that Redger is basically kneeling in front of Landrew, played by Charles McCulley. Now, looks familiar, right? Well, that's because it's the same actor who played Jarrus in season two's The Wolf and the Fold. Charles McCulley was also in movies like Airport 77, The Big Red One, and Splash. On TV, you could have seen him in Destry, Ironside, Wild Wild West, Mission Impossible. And they're trying to reason with Landrew. They have no idea yet that he's not going to listen. Well, I don't even think this Landrew can hear them. I demand that you release You have come to a world without hate, without fear, without conflict. None of the ancient evils. And Kirk is trying to talk through this to try to make a deal right um until spock finally says like i don't this guy didn't even hear yeah because yeah, spock is basically yeah. like yeah give it up you know <laughs> save, um, save your breath captain landrew listen to me you will be absorbed your individuality will merge into the unity of good and at this point we start to hear a a pitch sound mm -hmm. getting bigger and bigger and it, it knocks our landing party out so here's the next thing I wanted to talk about is yeah. that, okay, so, so Landry, we establishing our history. There was this charismatic figure, genius Landrew, who in the midst of this disaster came up with this idea and he created this computer system and he created this technology. That's what we're assuming. So this is really right at the beginning when they're beginning to speculate about AI, about the ideas of artificial intelligence is mid sixties. And they're going, well, how would, how could we create a computer, uh, computer that could do this kind of thing? And of course, it was way beyond where they were at that time. It isn't way, way beyond where we are at this time. Part of what we took a long time to figure out about artificial intelligence is that computers don't think the way humans think. What you have to do is use what computers are good at. And so what computers are good at is crunching a lot of data in a way that we can't. So, so this is what I was thinking about. I was like, how does a computer beat a human at chess? Um, have, do you know any about how this works? No, no. Okay. So here's what a human does. A human who knows chess really well is they look at the board and they, they think through a bunch of possibilities and think through a bunch of possible responses to those moves, mm -hmm. but they're only thinking within a certain set of boundaries because they can't think, we can't think of every possible move and every possible response that we put. It's too much. But a computer can. A, what a, so what we do is we think of a certain thing, and come up with a strategy based on what our knowledge of chess is and our knowledge of the other person. 
What a computer does is it crunches every single possible move from every single possible position and every single possible response and goes through as many of them as they can. And chess is a time game. So you only have so much time to make your move. And so within that time, an early computer, let's say it could crunch 5,000 moves. And that's as far as it could get. When the computer doubles because of Moore's law and it doubles in power, well, now it can do 10,000 and now it can do 20,000. Now it can do 40,000. And so the computer is able to calculate through more and more moves until it's now calculating millions of possibilities and coming up with that is the right move at this point. And it, and when the finally big blue, the IBM computer beat Gary Kasparov, it was because it had, it was fast enough that it could calculate enough moves. And that's 20 years ago. So now it's so far beyond us. There's no way we can, because it literally can see the whole game. And so what computers do is that they crunch data. And the way AI works today is you can ask a computer a question, give it a goal and say, just look at all the data and think of design every possible shape for the hood of this car and figure out what's most aerodynamic or what has the properties that we want in terms of manufacturing or cost or whatever. Now, a human would think of what they know about the world and they would do that and follow that. A computer will just try everything. It'll try every possible combination of everything and whatever works, it will come up with a thing that we couldn't have come up with. So you send the AI on a mission. And I think what happened with Landrew is that he created an AI and the mission was maximize human happiness, minimize human pain. And he created technology where the AI could mess with people's brains and could suppress certain things or help express other things. And it just kept messing with people's brains and seeing where they were most blissed out. And this is over 6,000 years where it got to. Oh, interesting. Yeah. One of the theories when people talk about how could AI mess us up is one of them is, uh, is, the, is called, I think they usually call it the, is the, the paperclip problem. And the paperclip problem is that, that I have a paperclip company. I want to manufacture paperclips. And I say to the AI, figure out how to manufacture the most paperclips at the least cost. And I only give it that goal. And therefore, it figures out what I need to do is destroy the whole planet in order to get all the metal I need, because all I want to do is build paper clips. And so that it actually wipes out the earth, but it builds a ton of paper clips. The instructions that were given to Landrew were like, build all the paper clips you can. Maximize joy and bliss, minimize pain. But then you have the Enterprise crew come in and they are illogical. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's why Kirk was able to beat Spock at chess. So Spock programmed the enterprise computer. Mm -hmm. So when Spock plays the enterprise computer, except for in court martial where the computer was, right. was, was uh, compromised, Spock can only achieve a draw with the computer. But Kirk has been able to beat Spock at chess. Regularly. Regularly. So now what you're so what I'm what I'm taking from this is that Return of the Archons is is a big game of chess, mm. and that Landrew is playing the people of Beta Three like chess, and then you have these illogical invaders come in, and like whenever the lawgivers are in a situation that defies like any kind of protocol, they have to commiserate with each other because they're not used to it. And Landrew ultimately loses the game because he's outsmarted. It's checkmate. 
by an illogical human. Well, I, I think that's a perfect, a perfect analogy. And it goes to, you know, it goes to the Corbinite maneuver too, because it's not chess. Poker. It's poker. Well, and poker is a much harder game for the computer. Actually, I don't know if that's true. My assumption is poker is a harder game for the computer to win than it is at chess. Because chess, it's just crunching the numbers. Whereas poker is a lot about playing the person. What are they thinking? Bluff. Yeah. Can't bluff in chess. Yeah. It's act three and Kirk wakes up. It is weird to me that it seems like they're in the same location. It's oh, yeah, always yeah, the bothered cell, me. Right. Yeah. By the way, that cell looks familiar because it was used in, it will be used rather in Errand of Mercy and also in Catsball. Is it, I it also wonder, it feels like it's other places too. We, that we, I feel like we've seen this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, cause you just go down to the, to the set house and you grab a couple of flats and this is your set. It always, it's always funny that Kirk is the last person to get knocked out in all of these things <laughs> and the first person to wake up because he's Kirk. <laughs> he's the captain. They realize that their weapons and communicators are gone and they realize that Dr. McCoy is gone. Just think of a way to get out of here. What about the lawgiver's inability to cope with the unexpected? It shouldn't depend on that happening again, Captain. A society as well organized as this one seems to be. Cannot conceive of such an oversight going uncorrected. Which, of course, is going to turn out to be true. Mm -hmm. Interesting, however, their reaction to your defiance was remarkably similar to the reaction of a computer when fed insufficient or contradictory data. This is the key. That goes exactly in this, what we were just talking yeah. about. And in comes the lawgivers with McCoy. Hello, friend. We were told to wait here. So McCoy is now absorbed. He has been absorbed. He has been changed. And this is very similar to what we will see happen in Catspaw mm. when he is uh, taken by Sylvia and Karov mm. and he comes back and he's basically been absorbed yeah. in that one too. <laughs> and Kirk is real frustrated and is basically shaking him, trying to get him to remember who he is and to bring him back. And it is no good. And then the law covers come in. And they point at Kirk and Kirk says, no. no. And they say, dang, you will die. <laughs> so they figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. McCoy, what will happen to him? He goes to joy, peace, tranquility. He goes to meet Landru. I, I really, really wonder what McCoy's feeling. And I wish there was a moment at the end of the show where Sulu or McCoy said, man, when it was happening, I just, I felt amazing. Yeah, yeah. When we see when we see Sulu return to his post, he's just like leaving you. You know, yeah. I'm back. But we don't see him changed by his experience, right? Or because so, they also could say they also could say it was terrible. I couldn't I couldn't control my I I said these things, but it was awful. Or they could have absolutely no memory exactly. of all of exactly. being absorbed. What does that mean? If 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 they have no memory of all of being absorbed, then I think that then that, it's total mind control. That it's, yeah. it's my control and it just plays into the rationale for Landrew must die. There's a hard cut to Kirk. He's on this angular thing with triangular arm restraints. And this guy comes in and introduces himself. I am my plan. It is your hour. Happy communing. With thanks. And goes to this booth and the music is intense. And then we cut away. Okay, so that was Marplum, played by Torin Thatcher. He, very, very, very busy actor for decades 
on film. He was in movies like The Crimson Pirate, Witness for the Prosecution, and the Marlon Brando version of Mutiny on the Bounty Hmm. on TV. Of course, all the usual shows that we've talked about, all these actors being on like Wagon Train, Bonanza, The Untouchables, Mission Impossible, and Night Gallery. And he maybe has just had Kirk absorbed. Yep. And we're back with Spock, who has tried to do a mind meld on McCoy and got nothing, which is maybe evidence that he's not there at all. Right. Like an episode like the Paradise Syndrome, where Kirk has lost his memory, Spock is able to connect to the memories deep and bring bring him back. But there is nothing for Spock to connect to with McCoy. So this is more than just mind control. This is probably why when Sulu came back at the end of the episode, he seemed completely unchanged by his experience because he didn't remember any of it. I think maybe that's evidence that they're really not there that much. Well, this is simply ridiculous. A bunch of Stone Age characters running around in robes. And apparently commanding powers far beyond our comprehension. Not simple. Not ridiculous. Very, very dangerous. Spock is both concerned by the demonstration of that power and also impressed by it. Yeah. Absolutely. And now the lawgivers come in and point at Spock and say, you come. I love watching Nimoy throughout this whole sequence is fun. All there's so this is he so has Spock down now. And there's so much observation and reaction and curiosity and and sarcasm and all it's there's so much going on in his face through this whole sequence. I'm glad you brought that up, Steve, because we've talked like when we were doing like the first, I guess, 10 episodes or so of of Enterprise incidents, how it took a little while for for Leonard Nimoy to to nail Spock. Like he he was kind of a wise ass in some episodes. Uh uh he would raise his voice, mm-hmm. uh, which as we would see is out of character for him. Overly formal and distant at other times. But you're right. In this episode, especially in this the way this scene plays out, it is absolutely clear that Leonard Nimoy has he now has Spock and he's like, I got this. I got this. And we go to the absorption chamber, and there is Kirk with a big smile. Joy to you, friend. Peace and contentment will fill you. This is so upset. I can, this I remember of going, oh no, they got Kirk. They got Kirk. <laughs> oh no. And they put Spock into this device, and he is about to be absorbed, and the camera pushes in on him. And I love, by the way, that Spock. It's curiosity. That's what that's what's playing on him space, not fear. He's looking around going, well, this is, I bet he would say, fascinating. Mm, absolutely. I'm surprised he did not say that. <laughs> Internally, he's saying that. And that's the end of Act 3. And we come back to Act 4 again, right to the same spot. It's a great shot with the two staves pointing at Spock in the foreground, creating a one-point perspective with all of the triangles that are going in towards Scott, Spock. And the camera pulls back. The lawgivers leave. Spock continues to look around curious. Marplum is in this booth, which is a cool. I like all the designs in this, by the way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And he says, Have no fear, friend. The effect is harmless. My name is Marplum. I was too late to save your first two friends. They have been absorbed. Beware of them. And then the booth kind of spins open and he steps out. And Spock asks about Kirk. He is unharmed, unchanged. I am the third man in Rager's triad. So, okay, Kirk's cool. He's going to be okay. And now we're sort of in with the underground, essentially. And then he says, look, just act like your captain. And I love, again, watch Nimoy. 
is that he does a decent job of acting blissed out. But then the moment he's past the lawgivers, you could see on his face the sort of, you know, this is kind of fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. But again, he plays it perfectly. Plays it perfectly. Joy be with you. Peace and contentment. And now we're back in the dungeon and we have to act like we're in the body because McCoy is watching everything that we're doing. And McCoy is very, very much of the body. They've yeah. got to be careful. He said, be careful. You speak in strange whispers. This is not the way of Landru. And Kirk, you know, snaps he- back into it. Joy be yours and tranquility, my friend. Gets away with it. And peace and harmony. Are you of the body? The body is one guides and i love that he says my friends and he guides them over to away another part from mccoy yeah let's get out of here let's get away from this guy and he asks spock what is your theory and spock says this is a soulless society captain it has no spirit no spark all is indeed peace and tranquility the peace of the factory the tranquility of the machine this is communism i mean this is the strongest communist metaphor we've had so far we've had so far it yeah. is absolutely a metaphor for the red scare And again, just revelations that have revealed themselves in this conversation about other movies, specifically Body Snatchers, that that also examine the Red Scare in in a similar way of like a collective of one, of a resistance, of an underground. Uh, I think it's, it's actually brilliant. And I always felt like Star Trek was at its best among, among other things, among other ways. Star Trek was at its best when it was a subtle allegory for the times. Yeah. And this is turning out to be a great example. And at the top of this conversation, Steve, I said that there were things that didn't quite work for me uh, because they were not played out. As it turns out, they were played out. They just were not played out in a way that they were spelled out. And that is what makes great science fiction great science fiction. The, the other thing, like you mentioned, the Red Scare, which is us in our country being afraid of being taken over exactly. by this thing. Mm-hmm. I think there's another thing to think about, too, which is that we can look at this world and Landru and go, man, this is kind of this is ridiculous. I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. it's, it's this is crazy. People don't act like this. But I was think what it made me think of was some of the stuff that happened under Stalin in the 20s and 30s and under Mao in the 50s and early 60s, mm. which is. Stalin's agricultural projects and Mao's Great Leap Forward, also mostly agricultural projects, were all basically applying these communistic ideals and forcing a society to change into this manufactured system that totally didn't work. And what happened in both cases is upwards of 20, 30 million people died Mm. of starvation because they were following an ideology rather than listening to the farmers who'd been farming for you know centuries and so it's like we are we actually are just dumb enough to be not that we become like of the body but the charismatic leader comes in with the new ideology in a time where we're really scarred and in pain like malice right after world war ii after the japanese atrocities throughout china and there had been you know the the nationalist revolution and and now this charismatic leader comes along and says i have the answer and everyone goes yeah that is the answer. And just by the way, it's interesting that just as Spock is basically laying it out of a red scare of communism, mm-hmm. just at that moment, Kirk says, Mr. Spock, the plug must be pulled. Sir, Landra must die. That is not subtle. And, and, the, and the next line is the prime directive. 
a prime directive of non-interference. This is the first appearance of it, isn't it? The first mention of the prime directive, which was a Gene Kuhn creation, uh, non-interference with evolving society. Uh, and this is a prime directive that Kirk immediately decides to break, something that he would break many times and make a career out of violating through through his own reasoning, uh, because in this case, just like with Val in the Apple, right. this is not an evolving society. This is stagnant. It is a, 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 a study of a culture in arrested development. And so clearly, this does not fall in with the prime directive should really be applying to. So to, a couple of things about this. One, I think it's funny that in the original series, most of the time, the almost all the times the prime directive is mentioned is times where we're going to break it. The one time it was not broken, though, uh, and, and it's an episode that I can't wait to talk about when we get to it, is uh, Bread and Circuses. Because mm -hmm. that's an episode where you kind of think they are going to do something with the prime directive there. But that's just that's an episode where they they just got to get out they of just there. leave. Yeah, they just leave like they don't change a thing. So most of the time you're right. Kirk yeah. broke it, but not that time. So and here's the question, and, and it applies particularly to Archons and the Apple, is that in both cases, the Enterprise is going to be destroyed. And so that's a very, very strong motivation to do what they're doing. A whole bunch of people's lives are at stake. If we mo remove the destruction of the Enterprise. Is Kirk right to destroy these societies? And, and I don't know that our answers are necessarily always going to be the same, um, but it's something I definitely want to think about. Um, and certainly when we get to the end of this episode, we should talk about it. You said you wanted us to help you. Prophecy says. Never mind what the prophecy says. If you want to be liberated from Landrum, we'll need your help. And already you see these guys are buffeting, particularly Redger. Yeah, Redger's backpedaling. Yeah. Yeah, the, the scope of, of what Kirk is proposing is over is overwhelming and and out of out of Redger's reach. And if he wasn't scared before, when Bones comes up yelling, You are not of the body. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It is pretty scary. And at Kirk's and he even starts choking Kirk. Yeah. He was choking like like he wasn't just upset yeah. and outing Kirk. He was choking. Yeah. And Kirk doesn't want to hurt him, but eventually we take out uh, uh McCoy. And then we hear the lawgivers coming. I love Spock and Kirk on either side of the entrance. And in come the lawgivers. And Kirk karate chops his guy out. And Spock punches the guy. So Kirk says... Isn't that somewhat old-fashioned? And as it turned out, that line was not scripted. It was oh. ad-libbed by Shatner. It makes the moment. If you didn't have that line... Because what that is, is that is the actor speaking what we're thinking. So, so there's a... Do you know the expression, hang a lantern on it? No. This is a this is a Hollywood writing ex expression, which is that I have something that's unusual in my story. And if I l just leave it there, everyone watching it is going to bump on that. They're like, well, that was unusual. That didn't quite make sense. And so what you do when you hang a lantern on it is I point out the thing that was unusual and then you accept it. So here, an example is you, I'm doing a romantic comedy and I got two characters and the the guy in Los Angeles is getting on a plane to fly to New York to tell the woman he loves her and the woman in New York. Is getting on a plane in New York to fly to Los Angeles to tell the guy that she loves him. And they both change planes in Chicago and they are both <laughs> rushing through the airport and they both happen to bump into each other, the exact person they were going to see. And it's a romantic moment and they kiss. Now, that is a ridiculous coincidence, right? So what you do is you have one of the characters say, oh, my God, 
what are the odds? I was coming to see you. I can't believe this happened. You just hung a lantern on it. Is that you pointed oh, out okay. that this was a weird thing that happened. And then the audience goes, okay, this is hanging a lantern. Hang up. Uh, good to know. That's, I just learned something. <laughs> Where is Landro? And these guys are scared. No, no. And we call up to the Enterprise and things are bad. The orbit's still decaying. Give it six hours more or less. And then Kirk asks an interesting question. How's Mr. Sulu? He's peaceful enough, but he worries me. Put a guard on him. On Sulu? And Kirk is smart because if Kirk's plan works, then he knows that Sulu will snap out of it. Well, and McCoy just tried to choke him. Oh, I see. I never thought about it like that. I always assumed that Kirk said, put a guard on him just to sort of observe any change in his behavior from the actions we're going to take down here. I never thought of it. No, Sulu's a threat. Sulu was a threat. Sulu was a threat. Sulu is a member of, the, of the Red Party. Yes, yes. And he's on the Enterprise. And we can't trust him anymore. Yep, that's totally wow. exactly right. You are right. That is absolutely why they said put a guard on him. And Reger is right on the edge of panic. We have destroyed ourselves. Please, no more. What Kirk says right here, all the talk about communism and the Red Scare. You said you wanted freedom. It's time you learn that freedom is never a gift. It has to be earned. And Reger, nope. He freaks out. He calls to the lawgivers. And now Spock gives a neck pinch right, to exactly. take him out. And we turn to Malpron and say, all right, take us to Landru. Now we are in the hall of audiences. Super dramatic music. And Kirk calls out. Landru. Landru. We are the archons. We come to speak. We are the Archons. We want to talk to you. And Landru appears. Despite my efforts to save you, you have invaded the body and you are causing great harm. We have no intention of causing harm. Again, Landru is not listening. He's a projection. The infection is strong. For the good of the body, you must die. And there's even a hint of maybe regret a little bit of the original Landru mm-hmm. that's in there. And he says, it is a great sorrow. We do not intend to die. And it's not just that they're going to die. Everybody who interacted with them is going to be in Landru's words, excised. The memory of the body will be cleansed. And Spock says, again, this is a projection. And Kirk goes, well, let's have a look at the projector mm-hmm. and turns on his phaser again. <laughs> yeah. It busts a hole in the wall, and there we see the true Landru. The true Landru is a computer, just like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Right? Yes. Same revelation in the same way. You know what else it is, by the way? This is The Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Oh, wow. You're right. Yeah. This whole society is a machine's concept of perfection, peace, harmony, but no soul. But no soul. And that is exactly what makes me think of what are little girls made of. Oh, yeah. So Landrew is saying that peace and tranquility are the good. Kirk convinces Landrew that without creativity, there is no good, and that by stifling creativity, it is the evil that must be destroyed for the greater good. So I'm thinking of the big reveal in What Are Little Girls Made Of when you see that Roger Corby is an android, a machine. And just at the moment, when we see that Landrew is a machine, if you notice, the tone of Landrew's voice becomes 
more it's a little more panicked like he's been discovered i am andrew you have intruded same thing that happens with corby when he's like see christine it's okay i'm in here yeah but the thing is is that well for one thing because you're not able to transfer the heart and the soul from humanity into a machine that is where corby went wrong because in the end of of what a little girl's made of dr corby was never here Yep. No one is there. The only yep. people left standing are Captain Kirk and Christine Chapel. In this in this situation, the the soul has not been transferred into Landrew's mechanical being. The heart is not there either. And now this has evolved over thousands of years to what it is now. So ultimately, Kirk uses logic to outsmart the computer. And in effect, what we see is that the computer destroying itself. And this episode has always been referred to as the first of many times, four times in particular, where Kirk talks a computer into destroying itself. The other four being the Changeling with Nomad, iMud, and the Ultimate Computer with the M5. But in actuality, Steve, this is the second time that Kirk has talked the computer into killing itself. It's just done in a different way. In what little girls are made of. Right, right. Yeah. Because the way that Kirk, like, like it's so overt and he just tossed the computer into destroying itself right. in the later episodes and in this one, the reasoning that he does with Dr. Corby, it, it's kind of a, it's a different reaction. It's a delayed reaction because when, when Kirk says to Corby, if there's any humanity left in you, give me that phaser and Corby gives him the phaser and Andrea is in the room. Yes. And Andrea is acting on her, her feelings, feelings that she is not, that don't she quite compete handle, with yeah. her. She can't handle it. So when they kiss, who pushes the trigger on Andrea's phaser? Corby. Corby. He killed himself. Yep. So that would make, for everyone listening, that would make what our little girl's made of really the first time that Kirk talks a computer into destroying itself. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And you brought up another show that I want to talk about, because while I think that Landrew and Corby, there's some similarities, I actually think the person closest to Landrew is Dr. Richard Daystrom, because he put his human engrams into the computer, thus thinking he had given the computer a piece of his soul. And you remember I told you about the paperclip problem Yep, mm -hmm. is that I give a computer a mission. But the computer is just mindlessly following that mission because it's not human, doesn't understand it. That's what's happening in the ultimate computer. And that's definitely what's happened with Landrew. And I want to say one other thing. Yeah. So these algorithms, these AI, I am saying that Landrew is an AI that continually messed with the system to follow its goal, which is to get the ultimate amount of bliss and the least amount of bad. Well, today we have algorithms that one could say they have done massive, massive damage to our world because the algorithms used by social media and by YouTube are algorithms whose purpose is maximize screen time, maximize attention. And so what they do, and this is true on Facebook, it's true on YouTube, is they are watching you as you look at stuff and they are seeing how long do you spend looking at that post, at that ad, at that image, at that video. And the mission that the programmers have given the AI is maximize that. And so the AI is continually changing what it gives us. 
What if I give you this video? What if this video starts after? What if I play this uh, news article in your Facebook feed or this one or this meme? And then it observes what keeps us engaged longer. And what all of these AIs discovered is more extreme things keep us engaged longer. Wow. The mm. more extreme it gets, the more you go into conspiracy theories and intense racism and violence and all these things. And because the, these, this artificial intelligence knows who you are and knows who I am, is it's not just giving everybody the same stuff. It is directly figuring out what does a person who is from Chicago, who's a fan of the Bulls, who went to co college but didn't graduate and has two kids, what's going to get them to stay on the longest? And so we're each being fed exactly the things that the computer, not a human, will thinks will keep us there longer. And those things are, if you look at the world today, if you look at the violence and the conspiracy theories and the hatred between these groups created by AI, just like the world that Landrew's computer created. That's amazing. That is amazing. By the way, also, your argument that Landrew equals the M5 computer is a strong and valid one because Landrew was preserving himself. What is the M5 program to do in the ultimate computer? Protect. Protect. Yep. Preserve itself. And the same attempt to transfer himself into the M5 can transfer the knowledge, the experience, but not his soul and not the heart. I am Landru. Landru died 6,000 years ago. I am Landru. I am he. But also, you know, the way that Kirk tries to reason with Corby. And when he saw the effect of his attempt to reach the humanity of Corby and the outcome of that attempt to reach the humanity, causing this machine kill itself, that must have stayed yes. in Kirk's mind when it came time to argue and to beat Landrew at its own game. The good of the body is the prime directive. Good of the body, Captain. That's the key. I had the same, I had exactly the same thought. And I also think to some degree, his experience with Gary Mitchell, absolute power corrupting, absolutely. And talking to Dr. Daner. Dr. Daner. Yeah. Um, and, and I love to, I think there is a central philosophical question that is asked in this episode that is so important that I don't want to rush over it which is that Landrew says the good of the body is the prime directive. And Kirk steps forward and says, what is the good? What is the good? Oh my God. That's that is, it's literally a meaning of life question. And Landrew is going, the good is the most happiness and the least violence. The good is the harmonious continuation of the body. The good is peace, tranquility. The good of the body is the directive. And Kirk is going, that's not what the good is. I mean, th there is a very fundamental statement about what is good. So, so we never actually see Kirk answer no. what is the good. He knows what the good isn't. And yeah. that's why he's able to, to be successful. You are harmful to the body. The body is, it exists, it is healthy. The body is dying. You are destroying. But he does not know what the good is. 
He just knows what it isn't. Well, he does know a little bit because creativity is key. Right, right. Creativity. And, and, and stagnation is bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and he says, he says. What have you done to do justice to the full potential of every individual of the bottom? I think he does have an opinion on what is the good. Mm-hmm. The full potential of every individual. And that is a very American way of looking at the things. full potential of every individual individual freedom yeah that is and creativity good, right the creativity the and that the individuality and the freedom and that is the good that's it's, as close to answering the question of what is the good that kirk could possibly answer it is almost as if the needs of the one outweigh the, the needs, needs of, of the, the many. many bingo yeah and and here's because what i think is i think the good is filled with contradictions. And that is why that is why we are going to spend our whole lives trying to think of what is the good. And that is why that is why when they leave Lindstrom behind, like the first thing he says is, you know, yep. we've it's been it's been rough. Mm-hmm. But that's the good of it. Well, and because I, I think there are absolutely times where the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, hundred percent. And there are times where the needs of the collective cannot and should not destroy the needs of the individual. And it's actually, and one of the great questions in society and in politics and in government is how do we balance the needs of the collective versus the needs of the individual? And we all answer these questions differently at different times, you know, and that, in fact, it's the tension within those things is actually where the good is, finding the balance. That's the hard part. Wow. So, uh, and you know, by the way, as soon as computers start to talk computerish, you know you got them. Insufficient data. Without freedom of choice, there is no creativity. Without creativity, there is no life. The body dies. The fault is yours. Are you aiding the body or are you destroying it? I am not programmed to answer that question. And by the way, also the the chilling line here. Mm. Landrew, help me. You, Landrew, help me, are the evil. Fulfill the prime directive. Help me, help me, help me, help me. Landrew is is crying out, Landrew, help me. This computer's been around for thousands of years. Yeah. If this has been the status quo for thousands of years, and it is crying out for its creator. You know what it makes me think of, by the way? What's that? Landrew, help me. I'm afraid, Dave. Oh, absolutely. I'm afraid. The HAL 9000 computer from 2001, A Space Odyssey. The computer, at, at the moment of its destruction, is the closest it ever got to being human. Same thing with Ruck in mm-hmm. What Are Little Girls Made Of and Corby in What Are Little Girls Made Of. And you're right, Landrew and the HAL 9000. Yep. At, at that moment, when they're achieving death, they come as close as they could ever be to humanity. To consciousness. consciousness. Well, and there's the moment where Landrew, in trying to save itself, says, I think I live. That is as close to Descartes, and I think therefore I am. As you could get, which is a which is arguably a pretty good definition of what consciousness is. I think, therefore, I am. He's trying to say, I am alive. I am conscious, and yet, man, Kirk just won't let up. You are the evil. The evil must be destroyed. Fulfill the prime directive. And you know what? It's funny because it is just like Hal. Because when Hal is dying, when Dave is pulling out those cards, this really scary villain in this movie, I feel really bad for. Yeah, right. Right. And when Landrew goes, help me, help me, help me, help me, I feel a little bad. I felt a little bad. A little. A little. <laughs> and, and as Landrew is dying, in run the law, lawgivers. Landrew, guide us. Landrew and Spock says uh, they have no guidance for the first time in their yep. lives. 
and the computer is destroyed. And Malpron and the lawgivers are just kind of looking at it. And Kirk says the lawgivers, You can get rid of those robes. If I were you, I'd start looking for another job. Interesting that, that by, by saying that, I never knew if that was just a joke or if that we were establishing that in the 23rd century, that capitalism was still uh, very much a part of society. It's definitely a thing that I think, and particularly later on in Star Trek, they don't handle well. Like they never, there's some episodes like, no, we don't care. There's no capitalism. There's no money. And then it's like, they, but they don't quite figure out, well, what is it? How's this all working? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, and I think it's pretty damn callous to say to a person who's been mind controlled their entire life, Time to get another job, dude. And see you later. <laughs> yeah, peace out. Because <laughs> uh, they beam back up to the, sh the ship, and then it's what you say. We call down to Lindstrom, and yeah, he's had... Half a dozen domestic quarrels and two genuine knockdown dragouts. It may not be paradise, but it's certainly human. Yeah, I love it. Kirk says, sounds refreshing. I, the, the theme of, which I, I'm going to quote the worst Star Trek movie, but I need my pain, which goes all the way back to the enemy within. Wow. Is is really central to Star Trek, even though that's not a good movie. Well, that's, I need my pain is the best moment from the worst Star Trek. I think movie. that's, I actually really like that sequence. That's a, that is definitely by far the best yeah. sequence when, when Cybok is reaching. And takes and, them through those. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and look from the earliest part of, of Star Trek, we, we saw in vivid detail, just how crucial our dark side is to our humanity. And that is never going to change. I love, by the way, that Spock is still admiring Landru. Marvelous feat of engineering. A computer capable of directing the lives of millions of human beings. But only a machine, Mr. Spock. The original Landru programmed it with all his knowledge, but he couldn't give it his wisdom, his compassion, his understanding, his soul. And I love Spock's response because Spock's response, because as much as I want to be Kirk, I, I, I'm a lot of who Spock is. You're more like Spock. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he says, Predictably metaphysical. I prefer the concrete, the graspable, the provable. And, you know, I don't know that we have a soul. I know that we feel that we have a soul. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that we have a soul. And we'll never know if no. we have a soul. Well, we might. If, if I, who am an atheist, am totally wrong, and we show up in heaven in an afterlife, well, then we probably do know that we yeah, have a soul. Yeah, that, that's we're going to find yeah. out the hard way, yeah. basically. Um, uh, and then this is a good Gene Kuhn end, I think. You'd make a splendid computer, Mr. Spock. That is very kind of you, Captain. That's a great That's joke. very Gene Kuhn. And, th and we, even have one, we even have one more. How often mankind has wished for a world as peaceful and secure as the one Landru provided. Yes, and we never got it. Just lucky, I guess. Just lucky, I guess. That's I need my pain, man. Yeah. That is mm -hmm. that is that is beware of utopia. Beware of utopia. In a couple of episodes, we're going to talk about this side of paradise. Yep. And granted, the the paradise in that episode was not manufactured by a machine. It was manufactured by the spores. And it's very different from what we see on this. Very point. different. Yeah. Very different. Look at the paradise manufactured by the machine, and look at the paradise manufactured by like basically uh, another life form. Yeah. And both cases, it was not an organic paradise manufactured by humanity itself. Yeah. And as a result, it was not something we could live with. So we, we've reached the end of uh, Return of the Archons, but I want, want to ask you this question. If we remove the threat to the Enterprise, the Enterprise is going to be fine. Kirk and Spock and all the land party, including O'Neill, they can all get away. Sulu and McCoy, they're going to be fine. 
are they right to destroy Landru or should they leave it alone? Uh, they should. They are correct in destroying Landru for the same reason that they were correct in destroying Landru all along. They said, I mean, the, the fact that the Enterprise was in danger sped up the process. Right. It created a race against time to accomplish this, but it was still something that needed to happen. It is just like with the Apple. I mean, it was a stagnant society, manufactured paradise by uh, an artificial intelligence, and it was not going anywhere. I 100% agree about Landrew. I think that he should be destroyed. I think this is, it's not just that it's stagnant. This is a whole bunch of mind-controlled automatons who are then forced to rape and attack each other at some relative amount of time. They have no freedom. They have no lives. There's no sense of true happiness or joy or individuality. So yes, Landrew has, we got to pull the plug on Landrew. I don't agree about the Apple. See, the, I, I agree with you. I think I mean, the we'll Apple- We'll have to get there and watch it again because it can be real different watching it for the show. Okay, well, well, you're right. First of all, the quote-unquote paradise manufactured by Landrew and the paradise manufactured by Val, they're two, they're two different very things. Very different. Very, very different. The paradise in the Apple is much more of a paradise because- I mean, Those people seem happy. They seemed happy. Spock even says these people are peaceful and they are happy, but they're not growing. And I think you're right. The need to destroy the Enterprise. If you take out the Enterprise, I think, well, because it also brings up, and, and you know what? We're going to do the Apple. I haven't watched in a long time. I'm watching all of these with a very, very different eye. And I'm going to really be observing. And, and, and I hope you will, too. Oh, of course. How is that society? If, with, without the Enterprise crew, how are they doing? Okay, well, let's ask the question. Yeah. So do you think, for everyone listening, do you think that if you take the Enterprise, the safety of the Enterprise and the safety of the crew out of the equation, was Kirk right to destroy Landru? Yep. That's the question. Yes. I say yes. You say yes. 100%. Yeah. But everyone listening, do you say yes? Was Kirk right to violate the prime directive, which he reasons in doing? Do you think that he did the right thing by taking these people out of this sort of whacked out, bizarre version of paradise? So I have another, I have another big idea I want to throw out. So I would think we're, we're almost through the first season. We've met a whole bunch of really powerful people. We've seen a whole bunch of different powerful technology that's beyond the Federation. And it seems to me that what we've seen is that when you get to a certain level of technology, you face a very dangerous choice. So whether it's the Telosians who had reached these mental powers and they took the wrong turn and that led to the destruction of their civilization or the android civilization on the Roger Corby planet is that once they developed these androids, they took the wrong turn. And they went underground and Roger Corby's theory about lifelessness and all this stuff. That's what happened is that then you have the Shoreleaf people. They didn't take the wrong turn. The Metrons seem to have not taken the wrong turn. Landrew's society absolutely did. Charlie X's people, it seems that there's no love and no emotions, very cold space, even though they're extremely powerful. And the jury's a little loud on Trelane because maybe his parents are okay and they're going to raise him better. But as a kid, he's pretty bad, but yeah, maybe he'll a, grow up and be brat. okay. And what this made me think of is like, I actually think in some way they're all wrestling with nuclear war is that we have attained the power to destroy ourselves. And now we face very, very dangerous choices. And are we going to use them correctly? And what I would like to add to that is that 
in the 60s with nuclear war. Not that we still don't face that because we still got a lot of bombs sitting around that could destroy the whole planet that we need a lot of wisdom to deal with. But what I was talking about today in AI, we now have another power that we are not currently wise enough to deal with. And much like the Telosians and much like the world of Landrew, all these places, we need to handle this stuff right or we're going to destroy ourselves with this technology we've invented. This is a theme that has been played out, that has been examined many, many times in Star Trek. And whether you're looking at a, a technological power, mm-hmm. like what we see in Return of the Archons, or, or uh, an organic power, like we see with the Telosians, mm-hmm. no matter what, the lesson is the same. Yep. That absolute power corrupts absolutely. And also that we will destroy ourselves if we do not have the wisdom to understand and use the technology as it continues to advance and progress. Yep. If the technology advances faster and greater than our, our wisdom to understand how to use it, then we will destroy ourselves. Yeah. And I'm going to add another word because I 100% agree with wisdom. I'm going to add the word that Kirk uses in Where No Man Has Gone Before, compassion. Compassion. If all else, God needs compassion. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Wow. I just think that after this conversation, I did not think it possible for me to have such a deeper appreciation for an episode, even though I've had deeper appreciations for each and every single episode that we have discussed, even the alternative factor, even, alternative even factor. the alternative factor, but definitely like an episode like Miri is another one that I just had a much deeper appreciation for after we discussed it. But return of the archons, I came into this discussion, not getting like the, the need for festival. And I now get it. I now understand why it was there. And for that reason alone, to learn something new, to have a different perspective, a fresh perspective on an episode that I've seen a million times over the course of basically yeah. my entire life. That makes this not only one of the most rewarding conversations we've had on Enterprise Incidents, but it, it makes me love Return of the Archons a whole lot more. When I said at the beginning of the episode that it was a big swing and it didn't quite knock it out of the park, I actually think it does. I really found so much. I mean, those of you who are listening don't know that when Scott showed up, I was like, I'm not done yet. I have a lot more to do in my notes because there's so much here. Yeah. There's so much going on in Return of the Archons. And, and like, if you really, really, really think about it and think it through, like we definitely have, I think that the answers are all there. You just really, really have to think about it. And whenever you're watching entertainment, that really challenges you in the way that not only Star Trek has done, but that this episode in particular has done to see it in a whole new light. Like we are seeing every episode that we have talked about because just in the last year and a half since uh, the beginning of, of the pandemic, the way that, that the world has changed in so many ways and that certain episodes are more relevant and resonate so much deeper. And here's an episode that is just like every episode we discussed. There's so much more there. Like who would have thought that this challenging show, which has reaped so many rewards and hold up under such deep scrutiny and 
be so provocative. And, and for everyone listening, we hope that you are enjoying our deep dives on enterprise incidents. And Steve, where can people follow you? Well, they can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. Of course, they can go to our Facebook page and do a search for enterprise incidents. And that's where, I mean, it's not just you and I that are inspired by this show. It's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And we would love to get all hundreds of thousands of people to visit our Facebook page and maybe subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher on YouTube. You don't get to see our faces, but you do get to leave comments. And we love responding to those comments. We've heard just some great, great ideas, stuff that you and I had never thought about. And we also, of course, want your reviews on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Enter uh, Incidents on Instagram at the Enterprise Incidents. And Scott, how would people find you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And please be sure to share Enterprise Incidents with fellow Star Trek fans, whether they are diehard TOS fans like you and me, or they are more casual Star Trek fans who maybe they loved Voyager was their best show and they're not that familiar with the original series. Well, here's an idea and here's something that a lot of listeners are doing. They are going back from the beginning, watching the original series in production order, episode by episode, and following along with us and listening to our podcast of the episode after they have watched the episode. One of these days, I'm going to go back and do the same thing. When we are all done recording 80 episodes of Enterprise Incidents, I'm going to do that exact same thing so I can experience it just like you. But please be sure to leave a review of Enterprise Incidents on Apple Podcasts because that is uh, helping us get more exposure. But please share Enterprise Incidents and make sure you uh, also check out my YouTube channel, uh, which is just Scott Mance. You catch me on KTLA in Southern California reviewing movies every week. And the thing is, uh, speaking of other podcasts, Mm. Steve, what's yours? My podcast is The Cinephiles, where every week we do a deep dive into movies the way you and I are doing deep dive into Star Trek. And if you like movies about artificial intelligence, then maybe you might want to check out our episodes on The Matrix or on one we mentioned here, 2001 A Space Odyssey where I had Scott Mance as a very, very special guest. And even films like Dr. Strangelove is another film that I feel relates to some of the things going on in Return of the Archons. Well, I'm glad you brought up the cinephiles, which by the way, uh, I've been a guest on the cinephiles, I think like six or seven times. And I have never had a more rewarding conversation about movies with anyone that I do with Steve Morris and his co-host, John Roca, my good friend, John Roca. And I'm excited because the first episode of the Cinephiles that I ever did with John and Steve was a deep dive on Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. So I'm very, very excited that the very next episode of Star Trek that we are doing on Enterprise Incidents is the precursor to The Wrath of Khan. Our next episode, our next deep dive is Space Seed. And I feel like we are coming full circle because I did that episode of The Cinephiles on Wrath of Khan years ago. I still get people on social media and on Twitter saying, hey, I loved your episode of Cinephiles on Wrath of Khan. And so to now come around to the point where we are going to do our deep dive next on Enterprise Incidents, this is a landmark episode you will not want to miss 
Thank you for listening. And until the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, keep going boldly. <laughs>